Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. It is Wellness Wednesday. Tanya Pinkins is here. Let me welcome to the show. He is the director of Eastern Shore Food Lab. He also wrote a book called Eat Like a Human. And they're all humans here. So I want to know what that means. Let me welcome Dr. Bill Schindler. Hey. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. How you doing? Good. Yourself? I'm good. I'm good. You look very fit. I appreciate that. So, uh, so a lot of y'all's doctors like the preachers don't <laughs> practice what you preach. Y'all be smoking, drinking, out there eating processed foods, and you're fat. You got clogged arteries. You know what I'm talking about. You look like you're fit, though, Dr. Schindler. Tell me about it. I am living my best life right now than I ever have. And I'll tell you, I was a Division One wrestler for Ohio State back in, in my late teens. I'm in better health now at 48 years old than I was then. You tell us what you're doing. All right. So actually, I am a doctor, but I'm a doctor of archaeology and anthropology. I'm not a medical doctor. Wow. This- <laughs> That's even more fascinating. Hold on. Put a, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. Tell us what, you're, Absolutely. Do- what you're doing over here. So my, my work is, fo- me and my family's work is focused on uh, getting a real understanding of our ancestral dietary past. And I mean a dietary past that is three and a half million years long. And it's the diet that approached the food that built us as a species, built us as humans. And I truly believe that understanding that diet um, is the best way to understand the fundamentals of a diet that is not only the healthiest diet for us today, but also is the most ethical and sustainable diet moving forward. One we can one we can rely on far into the future. All right. So three million years, three million yeah. years ago. Long time. Yes. Um, but we have evolved, haven't we, in three hundred three million years? One hundred percent. And that's and that's the point. So what what we have evolved, our brains and our bodies have gotten you know, much, much, much bigger over three and a half million years. And what's crazy is that our digestive tracts and our teeth are incredibly inefficient when compared to any other animal on the planet, especially other mammals. And uh, compared to a pr- similar sized primate, it's only 60 per- our gut is 60% the size of it should- that it should be. So where does all that support, the nutritional support for this massive body and brain growth come from? It doesn't come from us getting larger intestines or better working stomachs or even teeth that can do a better job. It comes from the technologies that our ancestors created, our ancestors both, you know, a long time ago, also at Pithecines, and even, even our, our, our homo sapien ancestors that created to do something, do things to our food before it even goes into our mouths. The thing that's unique about humans compared to other animals is that our food processing, the most important part of our food processing takes place before the food even touches our lips. We are not designed to eat most of the foods that we eat but we rely on the nutrition that these foods that we're not designed to consume can provide us. And that re- requires us to use technologies. And when I say technologies, I'm not talking about computers and those sorts of things. You're talking, I'm talking about, about fire. Very you're talking fire. about fire, water. You're talking Go ahead. Fire, fermentation, things like nishtamalization, curing, drying, smoking, cutting, slicing, dicing, all of those things when done properly, help us access, safely access the nutrition and the foods that we eat. And the, this is this is what we've done over three and a half million years. And that allowed us to literally out eat our digestive tract, out eat, you know, the, the, the our, our biological makeup and support the, this incredibly nutrient needy brain and these large, large mammal bodies as well. Eight, six, six, eight, zero, one, eight, two, five, five. All right. So let's let's walk down this path eat like a human, nourishing foods, 
and ancient ways of cooking to revolutionize your health. There are like 50, 11 million books. Uh, you can eat for your blood type. You got paleo. <laughs> you got keto. You got all of these. Daniel's diet. You got everybody has a way to eat. What? How should we be eating, Dr. Schindler? We, so this is not a diet book. This is an approach to food that uh, is, is a fusion of our ancestral approaches to food and our modern you know, needs as well. And real quick, before I directly answer that question, let me just say, you know, one thing that I've learned uh, over, over my lifetime and, and the past several decades of research is that true health, especially for humans, true health, uh, as far as food is concerned, does not just come from meeting our biological needs. Our, our biological needs are essentially the same as they were 300,000 years ago when the first modern day homo sapiens appeared. We are essentially the same beings, same nutritional needs, same digestive tracts. So I could very easily stand up here and say, listen, if I knew what the diet was, and nobody knows exactly what it was 300,000 years ago, but if I did, I could probably make the case to say, if I knew exactly what that was, here you eat this biologically, you'd be fulfilling all your biological needs. And, and, and I think there's some validity to that. But what's unique about humans is that food is so wrapped up in every single thing that we are. It's wrapped up in culture and tradition and religion, all sorts of things that in order to nourish ourselves properly, we have to meet or exceed our biological needs, but also our cultural and emotional needs at the same time. Even though we're the same as we were 300,000 years ago today, we are incredibly different culturally than we were even five years ago, right? So we have to make sure that this, it, it's a moving target and we have to make sure we, we meet or exceed all of those expectations. Now to eat like a human, and my approach to this, and, and this is this is um, research that's been conducted through archaeological research and also anthropological research. My family and I have literally traveled the world and lived and worked with indigenous and traditional groups all over the world um, to, to learn how they approach food and, and how they use their traditional uh, ways of processing food to make it safe and nourishing. This is not a book that tells you eat five grams of this and, and, and don't eat this and eat at seven o'clock at night. That isn't what this is about. What this is about is the same thing that we've done as humans forever, is no matter where we are, no matter what we're eating, there is a way to take those, those nutrients from, those food, from that food and make it more accessible and more nourishing for our bodies, because that's what we as humans do, and that's what we've done forever. So this is a great uh, approach to eating, whether you're a carnivore, or whether you do keto, or whether you're a vegan or a vegetarian or a pescatarian, whatever it is that you decide is in your foodscape, whether you live in the city or in the country or in the suburbs, there are ways of approaching that food, that resource base to make it as safe and nourishing as possible for you and your family. All right. You say animal, not meat. What's the difference? Uh-huh. One of the things that, so anytime that we talk about eating animals today in the modern, you know, in, in our modern language about food, we always say the word meat, we default to meat. And that's what we think about when we're eating animals. The crazy thing is that we introduced animals into our diets at we, we know at 3.4 million years ago, we had the first evidence of, of intentional butchering of scavenged animals, which means something else killed that animal. And our ancestors came in using stone tools, butchered that animal and ate the meat. What's crazy is we don't see huge changes when meat gets introduced into our diets. Our bodies don't grow that big, not much, much, or even our brains don't even grow that much. It isn't until almost a million and a half years later, at two million years, when we start hunting, we become the predators. We have first access to the entirety of that animal that things begin to change. And that's when we see the largest jump in body and brain size. 
And there's many anthropologists and archeologists, including me that believe the most important part of, of a, a resource that we brought into our diets that really began to make us human was the blood, the fat, and the organs. It wasn't the meat. So our ancestors for 2 million years were, uh, were eating completely nose to tail, eating the entire animal, eating 90 something percent of that animal. And while meat is a lot more nutrient dense than just a, than any vegetable, any fruit or vegetable you can get, it is one of the least nutrient dense parts of an animal. It's the blood, the fat, and the organs that is more nutrient dense and is also more bioavailable. Our body can access those nutrients more easily. When you compare that to the way that we approach food today in, in, in the modern Western world, we eat about 55% of a pig and 50% of a cow. That's what makes it to the grocery store. So we always say meat. And what I'm saying is one of the ways we should be approaching animals for um, nutritional reasons, but also for ethical and sustainable uh, sustainability reasons, but also for economical reasons is to readopt that complete nose to tail approach. So, you know, you said you're an archaeologist and an anthropologist, so I'm now my, it's piqued my curiosity. I happen to be in Panama right now. And Panama, the isthmus of Panama formed three million years ago. And the Panamanians, one of their origin stories is that they are responsible for Australopithecus moving to Homo sapiens because when the isthmus of Panama formed, it changed all the wind, all the land. And we had an animal that was up in the trees Mm -hmm. that would run down and its children had to hold on. And so it would get the food and go back up in the trees. But when Panama formed, it made one ocean, the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Caribbean, and suddenly Australopithecus had to hold her baby. And so the theory that we learn here in Panama is that what caused the brain size to increase was rest, that the baby didn't have to hold on anymore. The baby could just be held by the mother and the mother now went and got the food. And so that rest of the brain is what allowed it to, to develop more than a dietary change. What do you have to say to that? Well, I, I would say there, there's, when we talk about something as complex and, and very hard to understand because it's happened so long ago and it doesn't leave much archeological signatures, something as complex as, as um, brain growth, right? Encephalization. One of the things we need to think about is there's several things that we're talking about at the same time. One is what was the impetus? What was the trigger, the spark to, um, to initiate brain growth? And then what helped support or fuel that brain growth at the same time, right? So at 3 million years ago, in the time period that we're talking about around, and, and I never heard that about the Isthmus of Panama, but um, uh, whatever was going on then. The book is Children of the Ice Age. Right. So it, there was a little bit of brain growth change at that time and that transition from Australopithecines to early Homo, early Homo habilis. But the most massive uh, and pointed brain growth and body size growth happens just around two million years ago when the transition from Homo habilis to Homo erectus, which is almost modern, modern proportions, modern body and brain size. So th that is the, the time period. That what I'm looking at a lot is what's happening at that particular time period that helps support. Now, food didn't push, you know, did, didn't cause our brains to get bigger. What many of us are suggesting is the, that encephalization and that massive need for nutrition that, that comes with it was supported by our ability to introduce more nutrient dense and bioavailable foods. So our bodies not only had what it needed, 
but also didn't have to work so incredibly hard to access those the, the nutrients in those foods. But in many ways, when we were running around hunting and gathering, we were actually a lot healthier. We were busy. We worked. We slept. We, you know, now we have access to plenty of food. We're overweight. We're dying from luxury diseases, from overeating. Absolutely. But you know what the crazy thing is? First of all, it should be impossible to create an obese human. It, it should be. But we, the, the modern food industry has figured out how to do it and do it really, really well. But what should be even more impossible. And what we see now that has never appeared in the history of the universe before is in the same person, we can be have obesity and malnutrition, right? Just because people are eating more than they ever did before doesn't mean they're perished. So yes, they have access to plenty of food, but it's not the right food. And most importantly, one of the things that I'm suggesting here is that that food is not in the best state possible right. for their bodies to make right, the let's, best. Let's quickly... Um, we got Dr. Schindler, Dr. Bill Schindler is here. Tanya Pinkins is here. It is Wellness Wednesday. Eat Like a Human is the book. Really quickly, tell us what's the best way to eat. Tell us what, what, what are the best foods and how do we access yeah. The best way to eat is to, is to use the approaches to food that, you, uh, that are time-honored. Some of these are millions of years old, some like hundreds of thousands, some are thousands, to take whatever food you're eating and make it as safe and nourishing as possible. So, for example... If you're going to eat grains, it should be sourdough bread. If you're going to consume dairy, it should be the highest quality fermented dairy possible. And if it's legal where you live you know, and you know the farmer, raw dairy. If you're eating animals, it should be a complete nose to tail approach to animals. Um, and I can go on and on with that list. No, if you're, like, it, I like I like the very the very first one. Um, again, if what was the very first one? Because I the, the Sourdough, sourdough bread. bread. I read that somewhere. I was in in the Whole Foods the other day. Why sour? Why is sourdough bread better than whole grain, multi grain, whole mm -hmm. wheat? You know, rye. Why is sourdough so, better? One thing to understand about grains is grains are not here to nourish us. In fact, grains are one of the parts of the plants that the plant do, does not want us to destroy. They're they're built. They're designed chemically and physically to withstand our digestive tract. They are they are loaded with. Uh, anti-nutrients and actually plant toxins that allow them to survive, chemically survive our digestive tract. Wow. And they're actually shaped to physically go through our bodies and get pile, get dumped in a pile of manure somewhere that it's part of their evolutionary evolutionary process. So if we're going to take those grains and make them as safe and nourishing as possible for our human digestive tracts, which are not designed to consume them, we have to work very hard to do something before we eat it. Now, if we take those grains and leaven them with yeast, you know, bread, real bread is made of flour, water, and salt. And if we use yeast to leaven it, right, which produces carbon dioxide when it eats the carbohydrates, it'll get big, but it chemically and physically doesn't change those grains. It doesn't do anything to the toxins. It doesn't do anything to start breaking down the gluten and the grains in general to make them ready for our bodies. If you take the same exact ingredients and put it through a sourdough process and a sourdough bread process uses, yes, it uses yeast to leaven it, but it also uses lactobacillus bacteria to go, to put it through a lactic fermentation, changes the flavor in a, in a very positive way, but more importantly, chemically and physically transforms those grains to make them safer and more nourishing for our digestive tract. We've created a completely different food. And I'll give you one very quick example. We all know that the, uh, for anybody who's dealing with blood sugar issues understands what the glycemic index is, right? And uh, high, 100 is the highest, that's pure glucose. And uh, anything above 71 is in the high range and anything below 55 is in the low range. 
I don't care if you have all white bread flour, all whole grain flour, a mix of it. If you make bread with just yeast, you're always over 71. You're in the high range wow. with those same exact ingredients, putting it through a true sourdough process. You drop it to below 55 and it's in the low range. Same ingredients. Wow. It's just the process. I so uh, Mr. Mr. Schindler, you would bring up sourdough bread. I have a movie coming out this week called Red Pill and sourdough bread plays a very big part in that because the original preservative of sourdough bread was urine. Can you talk a little bit about urine as a preservative in sourdough bread and yeah. how, well, it's the truth. So it's just a fact. <laughs> I, I actually, you know, I don't, I don't know about urine and sourdough bread. I know about urine in, in, in several different food ways, historic food ways, but I don't know about uh, uh, urine and sourdough bread. It was used okay. as a preservative. To, Ty is coming in dropping the, knowledge today. No, that's a great knowledge bomb there. I assume it's to drop the pH even lower. It's the, ascor it's, it's the ascorbic acid. Um, yeah. To drop okay. the pH. Well, we, and, but, but, you know, we can. And even with um, in, in sourdough bread baking, when you drop the pH, so seven is neutral, obviously, right? When you drop the pH below four, uh, it begins, and so the more fermentation that takes place, the the lactobacillus bacteria eating the carbohydrates, creating lactic acid, and the, and the and the pH drops or the acidity raises. When you get to below four, which we do on purpose for certain things, it actually starts to destroy the gluten grains. And if you're making something like a cake or a muffin or a cookie, it's perfect because it has that cake-like texture. But when you drop it too low, um, it does destroy some of the things that make bread elastic and, and what it is. And, I, and I'm very curious to see how far they go. Do you have wow. any idea with the, with the acid from the urine? I'm what looking it, it up right now to see what it was. Well, um, that would definitely make the sourdough very sour to say the least. <laughs> urine, um, urine does not have that kind of, I don't know. it doesn't have a taste. How do you, urine, wait, time, time out. Why do you know this? You know, I'm all right, an all right. explorer talk off of mic. things. Let's, let's talk off I'm mic. totally um, an explorer of things. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Bill Schindler, uh, your favorite recipe, the 75 plus recipes in Eat Like a Human, what's your favorite? My favorite recipe is the chicken liver pate solely because it's such an accessible way for somebody in just a regular kitchen who doesn't even have that much cooking experience to start to take that step towards using more of the entire animal. And it also just tastes delicious. So you're saying that when we only eat parts of animals, we're not getting all of the health benefits. And, you know, now we're not reading that we're going to have um, cloned animal parts because some people only like the breast. So they're saying that in the next five years, we're not even going to be having the option to see a whole animal anymore. They're just going to be cloning the parts of the animal that sell the most. Well, so, I really hope that's not the case. <laughs> I really at, hope that's they're the already case. saying that they're ready with I that. Know it. Yeah. I'm, not only am I saying we're not getting all the nutrition that that animal can provide, I'm saying that we are getting less than half of the less than half of the nutrition that that animal can provide by only eating the flesh. And I'll give you a very quick example. Um, we did a study, me and a, one of the biologists here at Washington College, we took uh, 13 white tailed deer. And uh, we, we harvested them different ages, males and females, uh, weighed them and took them completely apart. And we took literally every single part of it. We took every bit of fat. We took all the blood. We took the uh, marrow out of every single bone of all these animals. And we set aside 
all the meat that a hunter typically keeps, which is ex- almost exactly the same percentage and the same kind of thing that a, a modern butcher in America would keep from a pig or a cow, right? So all we had was all the stuff that was left, right? We, so we had uh, bones, bone grease, marrow, fat, blood, organs, brains, eyes, those sorts of things. The amount of food, and, and, and I'm just taking calories. If you really want to have a, a understand all the amazing nutrition that that can provide. We can start talking about vitamins and all sorts of things, but as far as calories, which are very easy to calculate, very easy for us to understand because we're always talking about calories, the amount of calories left behind after all the meat was gone from an average size white tailed deer, which isn't that big, right? We're talking maybe, I don't know, 110, 120 pounds. The amount of calories left behind, depending on your caloric intake, depending on if you're a couch potato or an Olympic athlete, would feed you for 13 to 31 days. Oh, wow. 13 to 31 days worth of calories were left behind after all the meat was taken. And that's from a, a, a just an average size deer. If you take an average size pig or an average size cow. Okay, mean, but what are we going to make out of those parts that we throw away? So what what is left to make, make out of the parts we throw away from the deer? He's making eyeball pate. <laughs> everything and literally literally are we eating the skin are we eating the deer skin we no. you could and i've actually made deer rinds out of the skin but we I, I wasn't even calculating the skin in that case the skin and the hair were gone so very easy very easy to do obviously we take all the bones throw them in a pot make make bone broth with that and what you get out of that and in addition to the minerals and the flavor and the collagen and all is um, both the marrow and the bone grease. And the bone grease is actually in the matrix of the bone itself. So you, you have all that, which is incredibly high quality nutrition. You have the heart, you have the liver, you have the spleen, you have the lungs, you have the eyes, you have the brains, and they can be used in obviously a number of different ways. And one of the easy things you can do is literally just grind most of it up together. And we do this quite often. When we, when we harvest cows here, we take and we take the all the organs, put them in with the meat, grind and oil together, which is the right, um, you know, it just happens to be the right percentage. I mean, we didn't have, our ancestors are not sitting there trying to take all the livers and make a pate and eat pate every day. They ate the amount, they harvested an animal and ate the amount of the organs that were there, <laughs> finished eating that animal and then went and harvested a, another animal. We, and oh. we're making this very complicated today because we take and break the animals apart and then only get, make some of them available, some of those parts available to grocery stores. Well, in Mexico, when you have carnitas, they put a whole pig in a pot and they cook it in a huge vat and you just you just scoop out what you get and they are cooking it all. Yep. So, I mean, it's not like everybody doesn't eat all the parts of it. You're getting organs and all of that when you're eating carnitas the way it's traditionally prepared. 100%. I was in Oaxaca about four weeks ago and I had a beef eyeball taco. It's fantastic. Right on the side of the street. And wow. this is, but that's the kind of thing that nobody would blink an eye at there. <laughs> but here you can't right. even, you we're can't even get it. No, yeah. we're conditioned. Well, uh, in this book, Eat Like a Human, uh, not only are you getting recipes, but you're also getting a breakdown of how we should be eating the fermentation. You're, you're taking us through the, the anthropology of it all, the archaeology. It's more than just talking about food. Is talking about humans and I appreciate the work that you put in to this and the t-shirt is is fire as well Dr. Schindler thank you for being here I appreciate you thank you so much it was a pleasure to talk to both of you thank yes. you yes you can follow him at Dr. Bill Schindler 
Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.